Tell your story, build your brand. ArtMediaNorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. Now, enjoy this conversation with Al Karnas. All right, welcome. Thanks, Al, for being on the podcast. Um, well, thanks for having me. Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that. Thanks for thinking of me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have known you as a you know great guitar player and uh, somebody that is super musical and, and has a lot of experience and knowledge about the music industry for a lot of years. So uh, it's it's a privilege to have played music with you, and hopefully we can do it again soon. And, uh, right. Yeah. Anyways, um, so let's, can we talk about, just start out with your early years, uh, where did you grow up, and can you share one or two stories from your childhood that could relate to music or not? Sure. I, I grew up in Southern California in the San Fernando Valley. I was born in 1947, and I didn't have any particular interest for music until I was 10, and it started with my sister, who was just listening to an Elvis Presley record, and she was talking to her girlfriend, and I was hearing this music, and <laughs> I heard this wonderful guitar playing, which, of course, was Scotty Moore, but I thought it was Elvis Presley. Right. <laughs> and, I think a uh, lot of people did. I'm sure. Yeah. And I thought, well, that would be cool. Maybe I'll learn to play guitar at the age of 10 years old in 1957. And uh, so I talked to my dad. We didn't have a lot of money, and uh, so the thought of taking guitar lessons was a little difficult financially, but my uh, mom and dad agreed that I could start taking guitar lessons. And uh, so we found a guitar teacher, not on the Internet, <laughs> yeah, uh, by the name of Duke Miller, who eventually became my business partner, along with our other business partner, Mike McGuire, um, and so I started with Duke when I was 10 and took lessons with him for probably four or five years. Started playing um, with a group when I was about 13. Uh, with The first group I played with included my uh, eventual business partner, Mike McGuire. And we played in a band that, was, uh, that had the drummer Horace Height Jr. Horace Height was a famous band director back in the days and lived in Beverly Hills and I remember driving up there and seeing <laughs> this mansion that uh, was in front of us and uh, so we started playing with uh, Horace Height Jr. for a little bit and then the surf craze started coming out and uh, I just heard the day that Dick Dale died. Oh wow. So that was a little bit of a shock. I think yeah. he was 81 years old. Because he had played in Portland not that long ago. Uh, seems like uh -huh. seems like only four or five years ago, a friend of mine was talking about going to see him at the Crystal Ballroom. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he was a huge influence on a lot of guitar players back in the 60s. Um, and, of course, along with the Ventures. I think learning Ventures tunes kind of started my real... And, and um, Dwayne Eddy was the other guitar yeah. player. That uh, and he ended up being a good friend. So that oh, was wow. that was very as did Scotty Moore from the Elvis Presley. So my two biggest heroes back when I was a kid became friends. Being that I was in the music store business. Yeah, and, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it was pretty pretty incredible. Is this picture of you uh, in your first band? Yeah, actually, yeah. I didn't have this picture. 
uh, until just recently, a few months ago, I'm on the far left. The guy that is to my right, Bob Engel, started playing guitar at the same time I did. And then the girl behind the music stand, Linda Meglieski, I think was her name, um, was also in the group. And you'll notice we're all playing the same guitars. Yeah. And uh, Duke uh, talked, uh, my guitar teacher, our guitar teacher, uh, talked our parents into getting these Gibson LG1s. So I got that when I was 11 years old, I oh, believe, wow. or maybe 10 and a half. Wow. I, well, yeah, I think that's about right. I, we, I started off with a Stella rental for a few months, and that didn't work so good because the action was really high. And uh, it was shortly after that that uh, I got this LG1 Gibson, which is still a great guitar today. These Gibson LG1s from the yeah. 50s and 60s are tremendous guitars. They sound great. Yeah, they really knew how to make them. They, they knew how to make yeah, them. Yeah, they still make some pretty good good guitars, even yes. after bankruptcy. Even after bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So that is a great start. Yeah, so that, that was a start playing in, in the surf bands and playing for junior high school parties and dances and then eventually high school dances and um and i think when i was 11 in 11th grade i was probably 16 or 17 we started playing fraternity parties and we had an agent wow and uh he would book us for U, mostly ucla fraternity parties and then occasionally usc fraternity parties and we got a whole 10 bucks a person <laughs> driving all the way from the San Fernando Valley on out to wow. Santa Monica to play for these fraternity parties. Yeah, I think that's better than what you get pay, played or paid to play in Portland now. That could be. Yeah, yeah. But still. But still, it, what it, it was money. And yeah, and you learned a lot, you know. It's Definitely. a lot of on-the-job training, right? A lot of on-the-job training. I I never was really into practicing guitar. When I was taking lessons, I did most of my practicing the day before my guitar lesson, which was once a week. Yeah. And I was pretty lazy, as I was with anything like homework or any school activity. I always waited. I, I was a. I always procrastinated pretty much on everything yeah. until I started my business. Okay. And then you couldn't pre- you procrastinate can't. <laughs> when you have a business. Yeah, that's true. Did you do any music in school, like a, like? play music in the school band or anything like that? Or was just during no. the school years that you were playing? Uh... Just during the school years when we were playing for their dances. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, what was the first recording that you made? The uh, first recording was at a place called um, American Recording. And it was with Richie Podler. Uh, he was going by the name of Richie Allen. They did Three Dog Night and... Um, there, there was a whole bunch of groups that, that he produced and made famous. And uh, so I was playing in a group that um, we had two really good singers that could do a lot of Righteous Brothers tunes, and they uh-huh. had that kind of range in their voice. And they were good. They sounded pretty close to the Righteous Brothers. So um, Richie Allen, who I just mentioned, was the one that was producing these, had produced these main groups, asked if we wanted to be recorded, and we said yes, and uh, of course we didn't do anything with it, we didn't make any money, we didn't make any records or anything like that, but we were able to record. Yeah. And just the excitement of actually sitting down and recording, being nervous, of course, yeah. having to do retakes and whatever. And then after that recording, he actually, Richie asked me to, to play some guitar session work 
Very little. Mm-hmm. But I did some session work for him when he had his recording studio. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's a good gig if you can get that. Yeah. It's a great gig yeah, if you yeah. can get it. <laughs> I never had uh, any admirations of becoming a session player. I didn't even okay. really know what was involved in session work until I had my store. Okay. And then, of course, we had all the session players come into our store, and that's how I learned about the session business. Oh, okay. From these guys. Yeah. And so then that takes us to your store. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So that Yeah. Um, Mike, my partner, and I, it was mostly with Duke Miller we were a teaching school. Mm-hmm. We had a tiny, tiny little store, and it was a, the whole building was 900 square feet. And uh, so Mike and I taught. Um, I was teaching, actually, like you, a lot, but yeah. maybe even more. I was teaching six days a week. Yeah. And That's... I was teaching uh, during the week until 10 o'clock at night. And I was doing that primarily to make enough money to become Duke's partner. I think at the time, uh, I can't remember what his, what, what we had to pay to become partners, Mike and I, but um, we both taught a lot. And um, then eventually we got more, I got more involved in the store and cut back some of my teaching. Mm-hmm. And then this started, I think, in 1967. Uh, 66, 67, when Mike and I got involved with Duke. And then after we became partners with Duke, Duke decided to branch off into another area. He he got involved with Yamaha. He, he started a, a music school with Yamaha, a guitar program. Okay. Not a music school, but a guitar program. And he did that for a while. And then USC contacted him. They wanted to open up a uh, studio program at USC for guitar. Hmm. And I think that's how it went. Um, so at that point, Mike and I bought Duke out, and then Duke uh, left our partnership to become the person in charge for the guitar program at USC. Okay. Um, and the store was in that same neighborhood as USC? No. The, the store was in North Hollywood, the, okay. the little store, the 900-square-foot store. After we bought Duke out... Mike hit up his um, family for a loan to where we could expand our business. Mm -hmm. So we moved over to Ventura Boulevard, which we stayed until 1992. And that's a whole other story why we left that location. Um, But we we started off with one one side of the building, which was 5,000 square feet, and we had the upstairs. The downstairs was primarily guitar-related products, and then the upstairs was our repair department. And Mike evolved into doing the repair side of the business. I kept with the retail and the business side of it. And then we had Paul Rivera was our first uh, amp repair employee, and Paul Rivera, of course, is a famous amp maker. And, yes. Yeah. And But while he was working with us, he was working, I think, mostly with session players doing modifications on amplifiers. Okay. So a lot of the sounds we hear on recordings were, you know, yes. went through your store in a way. It you did. Know. Yeah, right. that's fascinating. And I think that was part of the, besides having a, an extensive guitar repair department, I think we ended up with eight or nine repair people in the in the repair department. Wow. And um, And the word got out that we were the place to come to. So that's how we inherited all these great... Guitar players, not only most of the session players would come into our store, but anybody that was L.A.-based or uh, groups of guitar players that would come through the L.A. area that needed 
um, some guitar repair work done or amplifier repair, like if Felton John's uh, guy needed some guitar repair or amp repair, then we we had the facility to do it, and wow. we were able to turn their stuff around really quickly, so that if they needed it that night, we would make sure and get it done. Wow, you so your people really knew their stuff. So our people yeah. knew their stuff. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, well, I think that sort of speaks to you and and Mike as well. To you know your kind of savvy within the music industry and what's what was needed you you were able to f- kind of find those people and facilitate the needs like that that that's incredible so yeah. it worked out good we had um mike of course with his extensive repair department being that he had some really good guitar repair people some of which have gone off on their own to open up their own guitar making companies and they're still successful and of course paul rivera with his amps he mm-hmm. paul rivera left us to go to work for yamaha and design some of yamaha's amps the g100 and a few others and then he went to work for fender in the early 80s and design uh the rivera fender amplifiers that right. are still popular amps today definitely yeah. um now with the Valley Arts was that the name of the store, or it was, is this? It a, was Valley Arts. It was Valley Arts. It was originally okay. it was Duke Miller, and then um, when we bought Duke out, Duke asked that we change the name. Okay. And there was a store called Lively Arts Music, and I thought that went out of business. And mm-hmm. I thought Lively Arts, and we're in the Valley. It's called Valley Arts, and Mike agreed with that, so that was our name, Valley Arts Guitar Center. Yeah. We kind of dropped the center because of Guitar Center. Right. <laughs> so it was Valley Arts Guitar. Okay, and then uh, you began making guitars as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, with all the repair going on, uh, we started getting some of these famous, famous players like Steve Lugather and, and Larry Carlton and a lot of session guys. And Mike was doing a lot of repair work uh, for Larry and, and Steve and some of the other guys, Lee Rittenauer, some of those guys. And uh, I think one of the first guitars that Mike had built was for Larry. Uh, Larry wanted uh, a Fender style guitar, and uh, so I can't remember if it was a Strat or a Tele shape. But um, so that's how we kind of got started in the the guitar making. Word got around with all the other session players, and most of the session guys had at least one Valley Arts guitar in their arsenal. Nice. Yeah, yeah. and you guys were like really particular about every detail that went into the guitars. Like they were, because some of these guys are like you know. Hey, we want you know the neck radius to be exactly like this, and everything mm-hmm. you know the fret, this kind of fret wire, and you know, so you guys made all that stuff happen. That's that's cool. Yeah, and and we tried to make all the guitars as perfect as possible, mm-hmm. uh, including the cosmetic part of the guitar. We used nitrocellulose lacquer and had a spray booth built, and, and eventually we we had the the repair department and the guitar manufacturing in the store, but it kind of outgrew itself and we had to move to a an actual location where we were just making guitars and basses few basses mostly guitars mostly guitars that's cool that's great yeah and then uh so valley arts was sold to gibson right well mike and i did a joint venture we, we had a fire in 1992 okay maybe it was 1991 i think it was the day after christmas we were open and i was upstairs in the repair department and i noticed some smoke coming up through the floor and uh, so I got on the intercom. We had a, a fairly large staff as well as customers and students and whatever. So I got on the intercom and said, we need to leave the building. There might be a fire. And we all got out of the building. I was in the front of the building, and there was a Pier 1 Imports to the left of the store. And 
within minutes, the Pier 1 imports just went up in flames. Oh, my because gosh. Because of all the wicker and stuff that they had. And it took down our store just, just instantly. And it turned out the uh, person that was lighting these fires, he was uh, an arson investigator for the city of Glendale. And he got that job, and evidently things weren't going good for him, and he decided that he'd start lighting fires on his own, and then he'd figure out how these fires were started because, of course, he knew how they started because he was the one that started them. And he became pretty famous with the firemen's community and the arson community that this guy was so smart that he could figure out how these fires were started. Well, as it turned out, he was doing it, and he took down our store with it. So they eventually cut. That's horrible. Uh, they eventually caught him and figured that out. They did. Uh, they did catch him. He's still in jail. They did a uh, Joseph Wamba, who was a, uh, an author and a, a movie producer, did a, a, a movie on this guy and uh, did a book. I can't remember the, the title of the book, but it's about all the fires that he um, had started over maybe it was three or four years. Wow. It's horrible. And, and unfortunately for us, we had over a million dollars worth of merchandise. And uh, with our insurance, I never figured that we'd lose everything. Usually if we lose something, it was somebody breaking into the store and grabbing a few thousand dollars worth of equipment. But never figured we'd lose everything. everything. So we had $300,000 worth of insurance oh. and a million dollars worth of inventory. So financially for us, it was it was pretty devastating. And uh, we ended up... I opened up another store locally, fairly close by to where the, the, our main store was, and um, it just it just wasn't the same size. It was much smaller, and it wasn't a good location, and and it really didn't do well. We were there for a couple of years, and I eventually we eventually sold it to somebody that had a chain of stores that was from the Bay Area. But so then we focused on the manufacturing side of it, yeah, and. Uh, so the, the Valley Arts retail store was helping finance the factory. And with the loss of the store, we, we also had a joint venture with a company in Japan called Kondashokai, which is Japan's second largest um, distributor, music, musical instrument distributor. They were making Valley Arts guitars in Japan to be sold in Asia. And they were also buying guitars that we were making in the U.S. to sell in Japan. So we had that association. We had a joint venture with a company in Guadalajara, Mexico. It was a Valley Arts retail store, and they were a Valley Arts distributor in Mexico. And then we had the same thing in Germany. And so everything was going financially. Before the fire, financially, everything was going great because we had these other three other businesses that was bringing in money. And then after we closed the store, it just changed everything. And... Uh, so we ended up losing our partnerships with those those three countries, mm. and so financially it was it was a disaster. That's rough. <laughs> so we so with the factory at one point we needed some financial help, and we did a joint venture with Samic. Okay. And uh, that lasted I think for a year, and it didn't turn out so well. Mm. And uh, so Mike and I went to work for Gibson. Mike opened up basically the the Gibson Custom Shop and ran that until a few years back, and I was living in L.A. still, and I became the Gibson sales rep for the Los Angeles area, or for the Southern California area. It was covered more than Los Angeles, and uh, did that for a long time. And nice, yeah. Yeah, so it, t- it turned out okay. You were working for Gibson when you came to the Northwest, or no? 
No. When uh, my late wife and I moved to Portland in 95, she had a business that a company in Portland purchased. And um, I stayed in California for another couple of months so that I could finish up my gig with Gibson doing the, the sales repping. And uh, so when I moved to Portland, um, I was unemployed and kind of hung out until I got a job with IMC, which was the distributor for Akai Products mm -hmm. and Jackson and Charvel Guitars. And they were a Texas-based company. So I worked for them for quite a few years. And uh, then they downsized. Eventually they went out of business. And Fender ended up getting Jackson and Charvel. So I was unemployed for a couple of years, which was kind of nice. My wife was doing good, and <laughs> and uh, I was playing in a couple of different bands and yeah. just having a good time. And uh, I got a, the job offer from Gibson to become their bluegrass um, sales manager, basically. There was two of us that were doing the bluegrass division. I was handling it from the Mississippi West, and he was handling it from the Mississippi East. I did that for a while, and then Gibson acquired the uh, Valley Arts name and wanted to continue manufacturing, recontinue, or reproduce the, the Valley Arts guitars. So that was my job, was to be the product manager for the, the Valley Arts. So I ended up being the product manager for Valley Arts. They also opened up, had the, the Slingerland name and the, and the Tobias base name. So I ended up being the product manager for those three. They were built in Arkansas rather than Nashville. Okay. And uh, did that for a while, and then the owner of Gibson sold this large building that was in Arkansas that was originally a Baldwin piano building. So it was like 200,000 square feet or something. And wow. we were only using maybe five or 10,000 to, to do the Slingerland drums and the Valley Arts guitars at Tobias Basses. So after they sold the building, they moved all the, the parts and materials and the tooling for those three back to Nashville, and they just never started it up again. Mm. And um, so in the meantime, I had also opened up a Valley Arts retail store for Gibson in Nashville. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, so I did that um, after leaving the Bluegrass Division. And I did that for about a year. I, I rented an apartment in Nashville and and stayed there. I'd come home to visit my wife every other week for three days and then go back to Nashville and, and manage the store. And the store was successful. Um, after about a year, uh, they made some changes and wanted me to go back to Portland and become the product manager and not do the store anymore. Okay. Yeah. So I did that until um, 2009, which is right around the time that my wife was uh, in bad health, mm -hmm. breast cancer, and uh, so I, I was 65 at the time, so I re decided to retire, and uh, my wife, after I retired from Gibson, she passed away shortly after that, and and, uh, and the rest is history. Yeah. Well, sorry to hear for your loss, but... Thank you. So, uh, recently you have been playing with Laura, mm -hmm. and this is, uh, so this is... Sun City Players. Sun City is, Players is the name of your group. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, can you can we talk about this, uh, the evolution of this musical adventure? Yeah, Lauren and I met um, before my wife passed. She was a friend of my wife's as well as mine, and and mutual friends. And um, after my wife passed, Lauren and I became friends, just strictly friends, and kind of hung out. And and she was singing in this 
choir, and I knew she had a good voice, and uh, so I suggested that her and I maybe learn some tunes and play together, play guitar, and she sing and start up a duo. And I finally talked her into doing Fire and Rain, the James Taylor song, and she did a great job on it. It's and a great song. It is a great song. <laughs> yeah. And we ended up um, playing with another singer, and actually two singers, one of which played guitar. So we had a four-piece uh, acoustic band, and we did a couple of open mic type things, and um, that lasted for a short period of time. And then Laura and I continued working just as a duo and did a lot of open mics. And then one of our friends, or actually one of Laura's friends, got us a gig uh, at a restaurant that specialized in Spanish wines in Battleground. And so we did that gig, and we got more gigs from that. And um, and that's been going on, I think, probably for about six years, five or six years that we've been actually getting out and playing. Um, nice. Prior to that, I was playing in a country band. I remember. And uh, this band was a, a real popular band for this area. Uh, we won a couple of uh, Best Country Band Awards and uh, we did a lot of the casinos and rodeos and did that with that particular band for about seven years and then it disbanded and I got involved with another singer and uh, played with Kurt, was his name, Kurt Van Meter, and played with him for a couple of years. And um, then he started doing some traveling outside of the area, um, which I really didn't want to do because that was kind of interfering with what Laura and I were doing because she and I were playing at the same time. And uh, so my first priority was is working with Laura yeah. and doing that. Country thing was fun because we got to play, for me, we got to play twice a week, generally speaking, and usually lasted five hours, uh-huh. and uh, which I enjoyed. And uh, if Laura and I could work twice a week, every week, I'd be happy. But yeah. <laughs> I think in her mind, three or four times a month is plenty. It's plenty. <laughs> right. So that's what we do. Yeah. Well, your country band sounded great. That was a lot of fun. I, I remember going to see you quite a few times. I remember one show, I was talking with you, and then uh, you turned around and you said, oh, hi, Jennifer, and Jennifer Batten was there. So, uh, you know, and I was just blown away <laughs> because I'm like, you know her? And you're like, yeah, she used to teach at my store. So anyways. She taught, she taught at GIT. At GIT. Guitar Institute of yeah. Technology, which yeah, yeah. started at our store. That start GIT started at your store. It started at our store. Howard Roberts was a good customer, and oh and Pat Hicks, God. who had owned Lively Arts Music that we got the name from, Pat Hicks and Howard Roberts uh, started this Guitar Institute of Technology, and eventually Tommy Tedesco got involved in it as well, and uh, so they did it for two years in our store upstairs where the repair was, the repair <laughs> department was. I and, had no uh, idea. Yeah, and it just it started to expand, and uh, so they they moved to Hollywood above the uh, Hollywood Wax Museum, and then that uh, they outgrew that space, and then ended up opening this place across the street that was huge, and then eventually Pat Hicks, and, and then Howard Roberts passed away, and so Pat had this big business going, and and with a lot of good people working there, including Tommy Tedesco. And uh, so he ended up selling it to Mr. Shibuya, who owned ESP from Japan. And I'm sure he still owns GIT, which, of course, you and I know. Musicians Institute. Musicians Institute, right. Yeah. Man, that, I did not know that. So I still have a guitar c- case that has a GIT sticker on it from when I was 18. I got that. I was, 
I thought I was going to go there. That, oh. that was my uh, <laughs> that was my uh, trajectory at the moment, but I, it, it evolved a few times since then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so Jennifer Batten yeah. was teaching there. That's incredible. And then we hired her to mm-hmm. teach at our store. Okay. And then eventually uh, Michael Jackson wanted her to, to be in his band. Yeah. Whether and- it was Michael Jackson or producer or whoever. And so Jennifer got this tall white hair, right, and uh, became a real rock star. Yeah, and uh, so anyway, and then Jennifer, uh, we were doing these Grammys with the Concrete Cowboys, the country band I was playing at, and and uh, so we played at the Grammys, the Portland Grammys, and Jennifer played there as well. So we hooked back up again, and and then uh, not too long after that, we were playing at the Ponderosa, and she came out to the Ponderosa yeah, to see. That's, yeah. To see me play, uh, which was a nice compliment. Yeah, no. And you were there for that. I game. was there. That was incredible. It was just uh, because I had, you know, read the, what was it, guitar player or guitar for the practicing musician columns that she was doing, mm. you know, eight fingers on the fingerboard and stuff like that. <laughs> Flight, of the bum- Flight of the Bumblebee for tapping right. on the guitar and all that. And uh, so I, you know, as a teenager, I was reading like her columns and trying to practice those crazy techniques and stuff like that. And then. You know, seeing she, she was in some of the Michael Jackson videos, and then uh, I think she did some some gigs with Jeff Beck as well. That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah, I forgot um, about that. Yeah, so uh, I was in a band that we shared a bill with Jennifer at the Crystal Ballroom in Portland at, when mm. she had moved to this area. I think that was a one of the things too. So I was on the elevator with her once. That was my <laughs> when I met her. So yeah, she anyways. came out here and moved to Sandy. Did she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's beautiful out there. Close, it's close it's to the mountain. Yep. Yeah. Um, I think Paul Gilbert lives in this area now too, in Laurel, I heard. So oh. uh, which he also taught at, at GIT back in the day. Back and, in the day. And graduated right? from there, I believe. A lot of good teachers at GIT. Yeah, no kidding. Great players. And a lot of students that moved on to become great players. Yeah. As well. That's that's cool. I had no idea that started with your store, or that was the original location. Yeah. <laughs> when did music become your business, and how did your job change over the years? So I think you've spoken to a lot of this, but uh, if you want to expand on that at all. Yeah, after I uh, um, dropped out of college after my third year, um, I was offered a job working teaching for Duke, and uh, so that's when I decided to quit college and and focus on my teaching career. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a fairly good reader. I thought that I was a good teacher, as I know you're a great teacher. <laughs> Thank um, you. But I, I just I, I didn't have that desire to practice to to practice as much as you would need to become a session player. And uh, so I was, I was a teacher, and, I, and that's how I made my living. That's, uh, I got married when I was 22, and that's about the time that, we, that I became partners with Duke and uh, taught for him for about three years, four years, and then when we moved to the new location, I taught just for a short period of time and realized I couldn't take the time to teach anymore because I had to focus on running our new store. Yeah. And so basically, I stopped playing guitar altogether. Wow. For 20 years. Wow. <laughs> it doesn't show. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I would play to demonstrate a guitar, or, um, or if I just got into guitar in the store to, to set up and hang on the wall, I would play it a little bit. But I, I hadn't played in a band or actually practiced or anything for 
about 20 years and I started playing again. Um, I think when I was in Nashville is when I really started to play. I started playing in a, in a uh, rock band and a country band when I was in Nashville, as well as backing up the singer, uh, a lady singer in Nashville. And I just got interested in playing guitar a lot. Yeah. Well, and it's it's I think it's deep in your bones, you know, you from the time from the age of ten and hearing the Elvis record, and then you just took off with it. So I I think I don't think it ever left you. I don't think anything. Probably not. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a guitar person. I've always loved the guitar itself. Yeah. I mean, besides playing the guitar, I just loved quality guitars. So what is it about the guitar, and can you can you describe that? Because I know you have a much more acute sense of detail than a lot of people who are guitar players. I mean, I'm sort of more of a hack where it's like, oh, I plug it in, I like the way it sounds, I like the way it feels, I like the way it looks, you know. Mm-hmm. People will talk about all the specs, and some of it I get, and some of it goes over my head. Okay. and then. Uh, but if it, if it plays and sounds good, then it's good. And but there's a lot of details that go into that. There is a lot of that. details. Uh, when, when we had our store, people like, like Howard Roberts would come in and say, I need some strings. And we'd say, what gauge? Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I just play guitar. Just tell me what I, I should have on my guitar. <laughs> Howard Roberts was like, that's hilarious. So a lot me. of great he guitar was players. So good. He, they were so good. But a lot of those guys, they spent all their time mastering their craft rather than mastering all the different aspects of how a guitar is built or what, kind of pickups go on guitar, what kind of strings go on the guitar, what kind of speakers in the amplifier. They were concerned about producing their playing mm-hmm. more so than learning about guitars. And I know there are guitar players out there that know a lot about guitars that are, that are great guitar players as well. Um, but I've always loved quality instruments, which usually meant USA instruments like Gibson and Fender and Guild and... Martin and uh, Gretsch and Rickenbacker. I think those are the main USA-made guitars. And I like originality. Mm -hmm. I'm not so much into modifying guitars. When we had our store, it was very common for back in the 70s for, like Lee Rittenauer, he he acquired a Stratocaster, and the serial number was 335. I remember that because Larry Carlton was playing ES-335. And now... uh, Lee Rittenauer's got a, a Strat with that number on it, which meant that it was one of the very first Strats, which would have been a 53 or a 54. Wow. And Steve Lukather was playing a Valley Arts guitar with a Floyd Rose on it, and he loved the idea that his guitar wasn't going to go out of tune using a Floyd Rose. Right. And back then, they didn't have the fine tuner. You just had to tune it, tighten down the nut, and then it'd be out of tune, you'd loosen it, tune it again, and you just keep going back and forth. So it was a pain in the ass to to get your guitar in tune with the original Floyd Rose style vibratos. Yeah. So Lee had us put a Floyd Rose on this mint 1953-54 Stratocaster, all original Stratocaster. So we did that, and then he didn't like it. Oh, no. So then we ended up taking it off and then plugging all the holes and everything. Um but that's an example of back in the 70s, guitars were just used guitars, and players, if they wanted a Bigsby on a guitar, they wouldn't think twice about putting a Bigsby, or, or if they wanted to try DiMarzio pickup, pulling out these PAFs and tossing them and putting the DiMarzio pickups in there, you know, doing all these modifications, putting Grovers. That was the most common thing, is people, players were bringing these original instruments 
with no modifications, they'd ask us to put shallers or grovers on. And, of course, that was the thing to do back in the day, especially for the session players. Right. So we did that. Wow. <laughs> so I like originality. I, I can understand that now. I, I don't know if I would have understood that back in the 80s or so. But, and and uh, I didn't understand it back then yeah. either. And back then, used guitars were used guitars. They didn't have right. that much value to them. Yeah. I mean, a, uh, a 59 Les Paul... Uh, I think we we had a 59 Les Paul come into our store back in uh, the early 70s, and we ended up selling it to one of our teachers for $300. Oh, God. Now that guitar is $300,000. Right. <laughs> and uh, But you just back then, it was just a used guitar. So wow. You, you didn't know. But I the, the fact is, I just appreciate original guitars yeah. more so than modified guitars or custom-made guitars. And I was in the custom guitar business. True. Um but I, I just like generally anything made before 1970 and is what I collect. Yeah, so you're a vintage guitar expert. So I was going to talk to you about or ask you about that as well. So, I mean, I think you covered a lot of that, but if you want to expand on that some yeah, too. I, um, I, I don't consider myself an expert. I know some people that, that have all the details of, of vintage guitars in their mind. I do have all the books. Yes. <laughs> and so if I have, and I have all the price lists, original price lists and catalogs from all those years, mm. um, I collect them. And so if there's something I need to look up, if um, anything specific on any particular year guitar, uh, like a neck width or anything, I can, I, I have that information that I can find. And that way you can verify that it's, authentic instead of right. being some sort of copy right yeah and unfortunately there are some good copy makers out there that are making strats look like 50s strats or or les pauls look like 59 les pauls because they're able to have a lacquered instrument that they could that they can paint a lacquer on an instrument and then make it look like this lacquer checking going on mm. the guitar has been around for 50 years and in fact it was just made um, so there are a lot of copies out there. I'm pretty good at picking out whether or not a guitar is a copy or not. Um, one of the things that I'm able to do pretty well is set up guitars. And so if I go to look at a guitar that I'm thinking about buying, um, I can judge how the neck is going to be. I usually take a trust rod tool with me mm -hmm. and then I'll adjust the neck while I'm there on the spot and make sure that the neck turns out to be a straight neck or a fairly straight neck guitar. And then look at everything else to see if it's original, if it's not original, if it, if it has issues. Yeah, because you'll even go to the extent to re have necks reset on acoustics and stuff like that as well, if, uh, if yeah. need be, right? There's a, there's a place that I love. It's called Portland Fretworks. Anybody that's looking for a, a great place to go for guitar repairs, Portland Fretworks in Portland. And uh, if I had a $200,000 43 Martin D45 that needed anything done to it, I wouldn't think twice about taking it to Todd or Mike over at Portland Fretworks and having them do work on it. That is uh, that's a heavy endorsement. It's They're great. That, they're yeah, they're yeah. important people in my life. Definitely, <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, is creativity or skill more important as a musician or an artist? Well, it, that's tough because yeah. it takes both. Um, creativity, I think, is probably the most important thing, but you have to have the skills to produce what you're thinking should be produced. Yeah. Uh, when you go into a guitar center, a lot of times, and you see these guys shredding, 
for a while. Uh, and there's no creativity, it's just fast playing. I admire the fact that they got the skills. Um, I don't admire them for their lack of creativity in what they're playing. Right. But a lot of times, uh, you know, when you go into a guitar center and you got a guitar, you want to show off and play as fast as you can possibly play. <laughs> but as you know, you know, the great guitar players don't always play fast. It's what notes come out and how those notes are played. When you hear Larry Carlton play one note, you know that it's either Larry Carlton or it's a really good guitar player. <laughs> how right. he can make that one note sound, especially yeah. bend it and make it have the sing. right vibrato. Yeah. And make it sing. Different right. kinds of vibrato, you know. Yeah. In the same song, up to seven different kinds of vibrato, I think I read somebody <laughs> said that he uh, could use up to seven different kinds of vibrato oh, in goodness. one song. Never so thought that's, about that. Yeah, me either. <laughs> Until I read it, I was like, wow. So I think creativity is important. I know how hard it is to get a good sound out of a note on a guitar to, to, to develop a good vibrato sound. Yeah. Um, people like Steve Lukather, when you hear him play the vibratos, that, the sound he gets from his vibrato, it's pretty hard to produce. Yeah. And that new guitar player that's real popular, it's a blues harmonica, Bonasamo. Oh, Joe Bonamassa? Yeah, Joe Bonamassa. Yeah. <laughs> There's a guy that's, that's a great guitar player, but he's also got a great guitar collection. And he knows his guitars. Oh, okay. So there's yeah. one of those examples where a great guitar player is and also And he knows smart. the specs and the <laughs> right. all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I admire that. All right. So what are some difficult times you've faced as a musician? Um, I know as a business owner with the Valley Arts, with the fire and everything, that's that had to be really extremely rough because it changes your whole paradigm. You know, mm-hmm. you were in one spot and all of this stuff was working and then it it pivoted quite a few times, I think, before it sort of settled into something. So how what how do people get through those kind of difficult times? And then have you experienced anything like that as a musician? We can talk about it as a business owner or as a musician. Yeah. It's up to you. Well, certainly the store and the manufacturing thing and the repair department, that was a whole separate part of my job. I mean, it wasn't as a musician, it was as uh, a music store owner mm-hmm. and manager. Um, so I didn't even know how, to, I didn't even need to know how to play guitar. It helped me talking with other players sure. if I already knew how to play guitar. You know, I get a little bit more respect. Or yeah. I, uh, if it, it does help to be able to play guitar if you're running a music store. It's like being a sales rep at Gibson. I remember at one point uh, the, the owner of Gibson when they were hiring new sales reps, part of the qualifications were not to be able to play guitar. He wanted business people in there wow. going out to these music stores that didn't play guitar. That didn't go over didn't, well. I was going to say, yeah, it sounds <laughs> like it's going to fall flat on its face. All right. Yeah. Um, so so that, that, that side of it, the, the mu- having the music store was a whole different thing after the music store thing was over for me. I got back into playing guitar and uh, started playing with other players. Which was great fun. Having the music store was great fun, but there was most of the time I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning and think about problems and not go back to sleep. It was for the 20, 25 years I was involved in having the music store. Um, it was it was tough as well as enjoyable. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. All the great players that I met um, over the years, and, and we we had some really famous people come into our store. That, some of them I became friends with was was fantastic, but playing in a band, 
um, there's nothing like it. And uh, I think the first band that I started playing with that started working on a regular basis was the Concrete Cowboys, which was the country band. And it was a real country band, and there was a lot of drama going on. Um, there was too much drinking at times, and uh, it, uh, it had the down spots to being in the band. Part of it, too, was just playing more than three hours a night. If we, you know, When we were into our fourth hour, fifth hour, I was getting kind of tired of standing up with a heavy Les Paul. And, yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, before we played, we had to set up the PA system. When we got done playing at two in the morning, we had to take the system down and put it into the trailer and then drive home or, or stay in a Motel 6 or whatever. And so it had its down times. But being up on a stage and playing with some great musicians and singers, Concrete Cowboys had great musicians and singers Definitely. in the band, and um, it was a lot of fun yeah. doing that. It wasn't a financial, uh, it wasn't a money maker right. for me. Uh, there would be no way that I could make a living uh, playing in that band unless the band took off. You know, if, right. if we got a record produced or whatever, that would have been a whole different situation. And the Concrete Cowboys had some potential because we did have some original tunes. We had mm -hmm. a couple of different CDs. And um, so there was potential there. But uh, for whatever reason, um, it just never took off other than doing the casinos and, and the rodeos and such. And, and some casinos were nice, and some of them paid pretty good. If we got 300 bucks a man at a casino, that was a lot of money for us. I think our average was maybe 200 bucks a night is what we would get paid. And so to make 300 or 400 and occasionally a little more than that was, was great. But it certainly, I could, couldn't... Six, you can't I, live on that. You can't live on that. No, now. no. And so I always had a day job. Yeah. I think that's uh, that's the... One of the things that I'm finding with every musician and artist I'm interviewing so far is that they either have a day job or two, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a couple other gigs uh, and or there's somebody else that's kind of helping financially support them so that they don't have to uh, focus on on their art being their their living. Um, it's unfortunate, but I think that the there's also the fact that people can do art now. They're not limited by like, uh, well, I can't afford to get into a studio or whatever. Well, you know, this is a, we're recording this in a $400 studio. That's, you know, has double a batteries in it. So it's a, <laughs> you know, times have changed. Times have changed. Well, back, back when I was young and, and recording in a recording studio and they had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of recording gear and it was all tape rather than digital. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, all that stuff was expensive. And, and when I had in my store, we were in a Kai dealer and we were a TIAC dealer and all these different manufacturers that were supporting recording studios. It was expensive. And then when the computer thing and the software thing started taking over back in the early nineties and, you can up a recording. You can open up a recording studio in your bedroom for four or five thousand dollars, maybe six thousand dollars, rather than having to spend a couple hundred grand, right? And be able to produce the same quality of sound that you would get in a high end studio it was pretty amazing. It is. So now, I mean, you could, if you want to record something, if Laura and I decide that we want to record a new CD, uh, if we don't use our friend Greg who recorded our last CD. Um, I could find somebody that would record cheap, you know, because they just yeah. do it in their house and right. and they do all the editing in their bedroom or living room or whatever, and uh, it's just it's just one person. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's a much different thing. So that brings us to uh, how has technology changed the music industry in general, and then how has it changed music for you? Well, in general, the the uh, the big change was in the late '80s, early '90s, when the computer thing and sampled sounds was happening, mm-hmm. and when sessions usually involved two or three guitar players, and and there was maybe. 25 guitar session players in the LA area that were doing most of the session work were making good money um, because they would hire two or three guitar players for the session work. But then after the sampled sound thing started developing, um, these guys lost their jobs and they had to either start teaching or get into something else and and just play music on the side because they couldn't make two or three hundred thousand dollars a year anymore. Right. It just it killed. Basically, the technology killed the, the, the money-making session work for these guys. It's funny how that, it just is a constant change, too, and everything moves so fast right now. Um, you know, there's a ton of music stores closing, and then, you know, I think G- Guitar Center is kind of always kind of teetering, uh, you know. Right. <laughs> it's very interesting, you know, because music, I think, is very popular. Like, there's tons of people on YouTube recording and playing music and stuff like that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we come, we come up with CDs and, you know, you might sell eight or 10 of them (laughs) or whatever, but then you're just like, okay, well, I guess I'll, I, maybe I'll bring the CDs into the gig with me. Maybe I will forget them and I'll probably sell about the same amount. (laughs) (laughs) You sell the same amount, which is zero. (laughs) You know, and telling people that it's on iTunes or Spotify is another thing too, that it's like, okay, you know, because people don't, if they're not in that moment where they want to buy that CD and take it home with them anymore, then they forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the good thing for the technology for the musician is they can produce a CD for next to nothing. Yeah. Uh, which is a good thing. And then the next question is, can they make money after they produce a CD? And that is a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. Right? So... Uh, how do how do you feel that schools prepare kids for life in general? Like, you know, let's say somebody's going through the school system, they graduate, now what? Yeah, I think they, they drop the ball in a lot of areas. Yeah. Um, I remember when I was in junior high school, they had home economics classes for the girls. Because back then, if you were a girl, you get married and you took care of your husband and you took care of the house. And um, but I think, in a lot of respects, that the schools don't offer real life experiences that you need mm-hmm. um, to run a household or or to live in an apartment and be able to pay your bills and know how to pay your bills and. Um, it just seems like there's a lot of areas. And one of the other areas, I think, too, is the lack of the music programs in schools. Um, although I think it has come back in some areas where they do have bands, school yeah. bands and such. But Yeah, there's school bands, but I, I know that the the funding is not going to the arts as, the way that it used to. And, and uh, I think sometimes it's even private funding that, that helps it continue, you know, as opposed to being taken care of by the taxes and stuff um the 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 one thing that came to mind too about the guitar business Mm -hmm. um 
most of the time there was a guitar hero that was playing a particular guitar and uh, business was good. Like when John Denver was playing Gill guitars and, and Glenn Campbell was playing Ovation and Eddie Van Halen was playing Hamer. Kramer. Uh, Kramer, excuse me, yeah, not Hamer, okay. but Kramer. Um, those sales went well, but also the music, the, the guitar music business was good because there was always at least one guitar hero around, if not more. Somebody to inspire. Exactly, that spurred the guitar playing yeah. craze. Yeah. And like Elvis Presley, you know, mm-hmm. playing guitar. And, um, so I've heard different theories about why the guitar business is down right now, partially because they don't have any real guitar heroes. Yeah. But when you listen to a band, there's always guitars in the band. It's true. We've talked about Elvis a couple of times. Now, did Elvis really play very much guitar? He played quite a bit of guitar, mostly rhythm. Rhythm. Chords, open chords. Uh Uh-huh. But yeah. Yeah, okay. So he he played rhythm chords okay. Yes. Right? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. He was very entertaining, though. He was very entertaining. Yep. uh, it's, It's funny how one person can change somebody's whole life, but it was Elvis Presley... That changed my life at the age of ten. Yeah. If it wasn't for Elvis and my sister playing "You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog" and got me involved in getting guitar lessons, I'd be doing something different. Yeah. And it wouldn't be music. I believe it. I believe it. That happened to John Lennon too. He saw uh, Elvis on the screen in a movie theater, oh. and when Elvis appeared on the screen, all these girls were screaming in the theater, and he thought, "That's a good job. <laughs> That's a good job. I'll take that one." <laughs> right. And uh, same kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you have good company there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Future, you and Laura are playing music. You said you may record another CD? Yeah. We're, we're due to start up another CD That's at some great. point. Laura likes learning new songs. Okay. Which is good. Because if it was me, we'd be playing the same Fire ones. and Rain <laughs> a bunch of times every night. Well, it is a very good song. So, yeah, it is a good song. Yeah. Uh, and being that I'm not much into practicing or learning new to- new tunes, actually, it's it's easy to learn new tunes because with YouTube, you can hear anything you want to hear. Um, if the chord changes are hard and you can't figure out, th- I can't figure out the chord changes. I can find the chord changes sometimes accurately <laughs> on yeah, that's... online, uh, and and occasionally you can see. Uh, somebody playing actual, the actual guitar parts right. on a video, and you think, oh, that's where they're playing that piece. So it's it's actually it's not that difficult to learn songs. But uh, Laura does like to learn new songs, and uh, so we do. I, I would say we learn a new song probably at least once every two weeks, if not every week. Okay. So we have a, a very large selection of, of songs. Fortunately, Laura's not great at memorizing lyrics, I'm not great at memorizing chords, <laughs> so we do have a music stand. I haven't gone to the iPod move, yeah, um, and I think it would be difficult for us to do that because of the size of the the words that you'd see on an iPod and, and or the iPad, you, yeah, iPad, yeah. Not iPod, iPad, um, or making notes on the music, or I mean, it would just be difficult. So we're one of the those duos that actually has a music stand sitting in front of them i'm sorry to say actually using paper using paper yeah right. that's all right yeah i still use paper most of the time too i do have an ipad but it's a 
iPad mini, which I didn't really think that one through because my eyes are getting worse every year. So and it's hard to see. Yeah, that. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think for our the original question, mm-hmm. we're going to go is just learn new tunes and maybe come up with another CD and and keep adding new venues. It's always fun to play at a new venue. There's a a place that we've been trying to play at for the last two or three years called Tommy O's in downtown Vancouver, and it's a nice venue. It's a big venue, and it's the type of place where people actually sit and listen rather than just a restaurant or a place where they're talking as much as listening. And uh, so we did get our first gig, and we played there a couple weeks ago, and and, uh, it turned out great. Nice. So that's what we're always looking for is new gigs, lower doing most of the work okay uh, we do have a website that i'm in charge of and i send out all the emails to our fans we have an email fan list and the only thing we're not doing is the other things like twitter and facebook and we started facebook uh f- for our duo the sun city players and uh and then uh we just dropped the ball on it so it's still out there but we're not updating it but Okay. Laura's got a new accountant who's good at that stuff. So okay. hopefully she'll help us get that Facebook thing up and running again. There you go. But I do keep the website up and okay, we just yeah. send out emails to everybody. And you can link your Facebook to the website if that hasn't happened already. But I'll put up the huh. website uh, and your Facebook page uh, if you would like on the in the show notes for the Yeah, not the podcast. Facebook page at this point. Okay, just, just website. the website. Yeah. All right. And that's suncityplayers.com. Right? Yeah. .com. Perfect. All right. Excellent. How many styles of music have you performed over the years? Because you've mentioned like surf, you've done uh, country. This is kind of chord melody, so jazz, rock. Well, the chord melody is folk. only for a few minutes. When it's only, I, oh, only for a, a few minutes. And I'm, okay. and I'm playing by myself. Okay. Uh, we're more of a pop group. Pop? Okay. Yeah. It's um, not Howard Roberts kind of stuff, right? No, no. I wish. Yeah, I could play not, Howard. Not Roberts. George Benson stuff. Oh, we do a George Benson tune. Do you? Which one? Um, on Broadway. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's not really a jazz tune per se. Uh, I I I think I I played with surf music and then I played with casual bands, actually reading fake books and mm-hmm. sitting in with a big band, you know, with horns oh, and wow. stuff. Did that for a while. Um. And that was at the beginning of the store era. And then, of course, I stopped playing when I had the store, and then I started playing rock and blues. I played in a blues and rock band for a while, and then I started playing the country. And uh, I was never a jazzer. Um, I would like to be. Yeah. But I found out that to be a good jazz guitar player, you have to actually listen to jazz music a lot. And I just... It makes a difference, doesn't it? Makes it makes a difference. Yeah. I was never a music listener. Okay. I don't go out and buy CDs or download music. Um, so I've, I never bought records. I never so bought the way CDs. that you enjoy music is by playing it. Right. Wow. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I've always been a music listener until recently. I mean, I still listen to music, but most of the time I listen to podcasts now. And, mm. and, uh, but I play music. So I've kind of started to evolve into what you've been in that way. Yeah. And I wish I could play guitar like you. but uh, <laughs> you, you say that, but that's not true. You play better than I play. Ah, uh, come on. So um, if you could go back in time and give 16-year-old Al Carnes some advice, and he would actually listen to it, what would you, what would you say? To change my life, possibly? Yeah, yeah. 
if it would change your life. Yeah. Or um, just something that you think you would need to hear at that point in your life. That's a tough question. It and is I, a tough I, question. Is, I'm not sure how to answer that. I've I've had a really good life and then yeah. And I don't think I'd change anything. Uh, even some of the negative experiences, the fire was certainly um, a major negative. Um, that was one of those things that, I don't know if it could have been averted, but um, it, it happened. I mean, having proper insurance could have, oh, that might be a thing. Somebody would say, hey, know what your inventory is and have, and have insurance to cover your entire inventory. I think that was one of the, the, the uh, big changes in my life, not having enough insurance. Um, when my wife was sick, we fortunately had insurance, and uh, that did was they a good take thing. good care of her? They that? did take good care of her. She had, she had, she first was diagnosed with breast cancer in the early '90s when we were living in LA, and she went through the mastectomy, and then when we moved to Portland, she had a, a second mastectomy just as a safeguard, and. Um, so she was cancer-free for a very long time, and then it just came back. Uh, you know, I think it's important for people to hear the process of these things because there's a lot of people that go through these things. and Yeah, it's things you don't plan. You know, we were married for 40 years, and and you don't plan. On, that was not planned in that there. That was not no, planned in there. No. But, no. but my life with Laura right now is great. Yeah, So that's definitely. That's a good thing. We're engaged now. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. So... Yeah, and you guys have been together now for you said seven years. Yeah, seven years as as a, as couple. a couple, right? Mm-hmm. And you were friends for quite a while before. For that. a couple of years, we were just yeah. hanging friends. That's great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So insurance, insurance to <laughs> sixteen year old Al. And I think the other thing is, if you want to be a good guitar player, you have to listen to music. Yeah, you have to listen to other guitar players. You have to study their styles. Some cases, you have to learn their their licks note for note. And uh, that's, I think, how you can develop your own style is by listening to other players and and uh, work off of that. I've just always been a kind of a lazy person when it came to practicing and listening to music, and I just basically never spent the time doing it. But I think that there was a time with it, like, you know, Hound Dog and stuff like that when you were 10. You It, it was getting in there somehow. You were listening yeah. yeah. Um, and then when I was teaching guitar, yeah, I had to listen because students would bring in records and you'd have to keep lifting the needle and moving it around yeah. until <laughs> uh, you got their solo that they wanted to learn or they wanted to learn the chord changes. Right. And I know you know all that. I do this. Uh, yeah, that could be partly why I don't listen to music as much is because I'm when I'm teaching five days a week, I'm, I'm doing that. Yeah, you get a little burned out. Yeah. But it, it, I think to be a good guitar player... Uh, you have to listen to a lot of guitar players. Definitely. And find out what you like and just go with that. Like, right. you know, I mean, if we look at the great players that we know, uh, you know, if I think about like Hendrix, you know, he definitely stole some kind of that soul, like Ike Turner kind of stuff, uh, double stop hammer on things. And, um, and then, obviously, like everybody since then has stolen that from Hendrix and given him the credit. But right. <laughs> All right. So how important do you feel like music and the creative arts are to society? And then can you give any examples? Well, the, the amazing thing to me, with all the, the TV shows and the music that's being played, 
is the fact that music is so big that it's seems to be everybody's life is music. Not everybody's, but a big percentage of the population that's their life is is music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's obviously it's a very important part of our society. Probably yeah. the biggest, I would think, music. Yeah. You know, that's how people socialize, especially younger people. Yeah. Is they that's listen true. to music together, they dance, or um, when you see a, a younger person with earphones off their iPhone, they listen to music, and mm-hmm. every everybody listens to music. Seems like it's amazing. <laughs> almost, almost everybody. <laughs> almost everybody. Yeah. Well, even, even more so than that. watching TV. I mean, you know, sitting there watching a stupid TV show is a lot of times a big waste of time, and you don't really learn much from it. Um, yeah. But from music, you can learn a lot. Yeah, that's true. Either as a as a player yourself or just as a listener, you know, listening to the lyrics and such. Sometimes the influences aren't positive. Sometimes they're negative, depending on the type of music that they're true. listening to. But yeah, I think there's positive and negative in in all different styles. So should musicians and creative artists just go for it, a hundred percent, or should they get a stable job and do their art or their music on the side? If it was one of my kids. I would push to get a job yeah. and have it on the side. It seems like the musicians, and, and I'm thinking one per, person in particular, that I suggested they, they lived in Washington, and they're kind of family. I mean, I consider them family. They're not blood, but they're somewhat family. Um, and, and at an early age, he took up guitar, and and, uh, and then when he was 18, he didn't want to go to college, and I suggested he go to uh, Guitar Institute of Technology, mm-hmm. and, and he learned uh, the recording business as well as doing the guitar thing. And he just went for it. That's His whole life is all around music. And you could not tell him that he should have that as a second, and he should have a real job as a first. He finished college and become an attorney or whatever, and and fall back on that um, it, it, music is his life and I think the people that, and he's become successful yeah took him a lot of years yeah but he he's done really well living in the Hollywood area and just focusing on music and, and not giving up and you know having his parents support him financially until this happened that mm-hmm. he actually took off uh, so you know it's easy to say that you should have a job, a real job, so to speak, uh, and have, you know, music is on the side, and if you can divert it into music to make it your profession, quit your regular day job, that's great. But it seems like most of the people that I've known over the years um, that have become successful musicians are the ones that they've devoted their whole life to music. Yeah. And if they went to college, music was their major. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that's good. A lot of times that's the way to network is go to GIT or, or go to a, a music college, go to USC and be in their, their guitar program or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I just have a few more here. How can musicians help their odds of making a living in music, even if it's only part of their living? I think when we had our store in L.A., all the guys that were successful session players were musicians that practiced a lot, listened a lot, didn't have drinking problems or drug problems, didn't have social problems. They were all the ones that I can think of were all really nice people. Mm-hmm. 
no ego problems to speak of. I mean, it seems like anybody that's really good, it's going to have a little bit of ego. But I, th I think to be successful, you have to be a nice person. You have to be willing to work really hard at it and not have any side things going on that take you away from working. Your focus. Your yeah. focus, like drinking and, and drugs and whatever. And just to try to be a nice person and to have a good business mind, because it is a business as well. To make a success out of it, you have to you have to be somewhat of an entrepreneur. I mean, when you think about the fact that you put a band together and you have five people in the band, and now that's a business. Or if you were going to open up um, a small market in a neighborhood and you brought four of your friends over and now five of you were business partners in this market and you wanted to make this market successful, how you would get along and, and how you would be able to come up with decisions, especially from people that might have completely different ideas. Mm -hmm. Now you have a band and there are five individuals that are nothing alike and so you got to figure out, well, business cards, getting a manager, what are we going to do about our website, how we should do our website, where we should play, what we should charge. So you got all these people in this band that are partners that are making, trying to make decisions. And I can't see that working, I think. Um, but obviously it does happen because bands sometimes are successful. It's nice if you have a leader of a band or somebody that... The other band members respect to make most of the decisions. Mm -hmm. um, that makes a lot of sense. So that's you know from a band standpoint, as an individual player, um, you know doing your own thing, um, you just not you can't have any drama in your, your life. Limit your drama. Limit your drama. Yeah. And then I think the business thing is really important for anybody doing anything, even if you're going to just be a family person and stay at home. You have yeah. to be able to run your household like a business. There's money coming in, there's money going out. Right. Uh, these are things that, you know, I didn't spend enough time in my younger days thinking about, so I made a lot of the wrong financial decisions, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, it, only me to blame for that. But, um, you know, I just hope that other people will kind of, like, learn from that and maybe make better decisions. Yeah, I think one of the worst things that musicians do sometimes when they need money is um, you know, run up credit card debt, and uh, that's not a good thing. No, <laughs> it's true. You and Warren Buffett both said it. That's, uh, <laughs> it's just, just don't bother with him. Yeah. He, yeah, easier said than done. That's right. <laughs> I'm Much the, easier said I'm than done. I'm on the wrong side of that right now, so... <laughs> I just bought a new lens for my camera yesterday, so uh, on credit. So. <laughs> well, sometimes if you're investing in your business, it's yeah. a whole different thing. It's like, you know, if you have a music store and you buy some guitars to sell, mm -hmm. you know, that's how you make your money is selling these guitars. So you open up an account with the guitar manufacturer, you have 30 days to pay it off. And mm -hmm. if you don't, they charge you interest and you pay interest until you sell. But generally, if you buy something for 50 cents, you might make 25 cents on that 50 cents. Or if you're buying new recording gear or lenses, that money's going to come back to you in your business. And yeah, it's true. Yeah. So you've worked with many pro musicians over the years, um, with Valley Arts, with Gibson. Um, can you share some of your experiences, uh, some of the people that you've connected with and either played music with or hung out with and, and just sort of like uh, that? 
And and it doesn't even have to be about their playing, but maybe just sort of them as a person, like what you've noticed uh, in their personality and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. I know Brent Mason comes to mind as somebody that you have known over the years, and Jennifer Batten. Um, I think you know having the store in L.A. and and being known as the pro players place to to be, mm-hmm. um, and it was a hangout. Tommy Tedesco with uh, the Wrecking Crew, you know all those players. Yeah. Um, Valley Arts was a hangout, you know, and they're in between in between session dates. A lot of times they come in the store and just hang out, or if they need something repaired, they come in. And so it'd be more difficult for me to think of players that didn't come in as as the wow. players that did come in. <laughs> and I think probably the I mean, Dwayne Eddy was a very close friend, and, and he and and George Harrison were good friends. And so George was thinking about doing a video, and. Um, so Dwayne said, well, maybe do it at Valley Arts, do it upstairs in the repair department. And so George came in a couple of times and, and we had all talked about it and, um, <laughs> you know, and wow. people like Eddie Van Halen, he and Steve used to come in the store and go through the parts, uh, bins <laughs> looking for old parts to do things. To make and Frankenstein guitars and To make Frankenstein <laughs> guitars. And I, I think pretty much everybody. Wow. Who were at Valley Arts at least once. You know, assuming that they had a good experience, and I think most of the time they did. There was only a few stores that catered to the pro players. Right. Uh, Guitar Center, um, because of their huge selection, um, and there was another store called uh, Westwood Music that dealt with uh, some of the, the the big names. But they they mostly, I think, did more with uh, the singers than the actual guitar players. But they did a lot of good. They did have a lot of guitar players come in their store. He became good friends. We had the fire, and here our biggest competitor gave me a call the day after and said, anything I can do to help, just let me know. And then he ended up coming to my house when I moved from L.A. to Portland to help me load up the, wow. the moving truck. Wow, that's incredible. It is incredible. Yeah, There was a, a lot of really nice people. And, and like I said earlier, that the people that are successful are the people generally that are nice people that don't have huge egos. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, all these players that used to come in, especially the session players, ego was never part of who they were. Wow. You know, they were just nice people that talked guitars. and. That's cool. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Yes. We, we, we dealt a lot of, of with bands, uh, traveling bands. Uh, we sold a lot of Anvil cases. We were mm-hmm. the place, if you were a traveling band, you needed Anvil cases built to come into our store and, and we would do that for them. Um, if, if guitar players needed racks built, they had to come to Valley Arts because we were the place to have a rack built. If you needed your amp modified or repaired, Paul Rivera was the guy to, to do it, <laughs> or Stevie Froyette was there after Paul Rivera. Um, so because of all these great people that, that were working at Valley Arts, like Jennifer Batten, some of these other teachers, that Grant Geisman was a teacher, uh, just a lot of, we had a lot of good teachers um, that went on to do their thing, word of mouth. You know, that's Valley Arts was a word of mouth kind of place. Yeah, and uh, so we got a lot of really good people coming in. Definitely, that's great. Uh, yeah, it's funny because I grew up near Buffalo, New York. So Tommy did Tedesco's from Niagara Falls, I believe. Right, a lot of good players out of Niagara Falls. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so Ralph Fava. Uh, Taught, owned Lockport Music, and he was one of my teachers there. And he was a Berkeley mm. grad, uh, and he turned down uh, playing for Miami Sound Machine 
to open a little music store in Lockport, New York, uh, because he had a family and that was his thing. And, Mm -hmm. uh, then when I was taking lessons from him, he used to talk about, you know, Tommy Tedesco and George Benson, some of these guys that, that he knew, but, uh, you know, I had not really met them. I just sort of like was one degree removed through him basically. (laughs) But yeah, uh, he was an amazing player though. Just great, great. Uh, oh. played a big old nice three thirty-five. What skills are important for everyone to learn? This could be taken as musicians, creative people, or literally everyone. Yes. Yeah, showing up on time to gigs is very important. Showing yeah. up early is even better. Yeah. 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 Being able to communicate with yeah, other people and, exactly. and being a nice person and, yeah. um, saying the right things and leaving it, walking away with the person having a good opinion of that other person and how would you say you learned those skills is was it common sense to you or everything when when we opened up the store i was always procrastinating in everything like i mentioned i i practiced the night before my lesson when i had a test to study for that i knew in school i'd study for it the night before i'd always do my homework at the last minute i always procrastinated at everything when i had the store i learned really quickly that to run a business, you can't procrastinate. You right. have to do things right away, and um, and you had to follow your gut, you know. And I think with musicians, this is kind of the same thing. You you have to kind of go with your gut feeling, um, and work hard at what you're doing. You know, if, whether as a player, learning your your instrument, practicing your instrument, listening to music. Going out to other clubs, networking is really important. I think networking is probably one of the most important things if you already have the talent. I mean, if you're not a good musician and you network, it's not going to do you any good. <laughs> right. But if you have both, you know, to get out and, and play open mics or a good, get out and jam, there's a lot of jamming going on. At least right now in Vancouver, there's a couple of clubs that uh, have jamming nights and you can just bring a guitar and amp and, and sit in. And if you're a good player and you're a nice person and... Um, generally you can probably get work from it. Nice. Do you notice a difference between musicians who are pro, like high-end pro, uh, semi-professional, and like weekend warriors, like people that play occasionally, stuff like that? Differences in their personalities? Uh, Differences in their skill levels. Do you feel like there's a significant difference between them? I think so. And and what is that difference? I, I think um, being able to create melodies when you're playing is pretty important. And I think a, a lot of players at the lower level that are weekend warriors, a lot of times they're playing learned licks or they're playing, they're showing their skills by playing fast and they're not really being melodic. Uh, when I go to hear a good band play someplace that is a successful band and you listen to the guitar player or the, one of the other musicians, most of the time, besides being skilled musicians, they have something to say with their instrument rather than just playing a bunch of notes. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, and I think melody is key with that. Yeah. And and I think rhythms to some extent, too. Rhythms? I mean, think of Paul Jackson Jr., who was one of customers back in the days he and uh, oh, another guitar player that um, he did Ghostbusters he was a guitar player and we built him a Valley Arts guitar 
uh, I can't think of his name, but he was he was known as one of the best rhythm guitar players ever. Um, although Paul Jackson Jr. I mean, he did a lot of the, the uh, Michael Jackson recordings because of his rhythm abilities, but he's also a great guitar player. Yeah, well. and that those rhythm tracks are amazing. It's just so good. Do you enjoy traveling? Is that something that you spend time doing and you look forward to doing, or is it... I hate to travel now. You hate traveling but now. When I was okay. working for Gibson, I was mostly flying Alaska and American Airlines, and I was traveling a lot, so I always got bumped, you know, mm. up to first class. Okay. And that was always a nice thing when you're traveling, not to be... In coach. In coach. Yeah. Especially if it's long distances. Yeah. And uh, so I just, I don't like to fly unless it's comfortable. Two or three hours is okay. Okay. But, you know, going to Europe, when we had our company in Japan and the company in Germany, we used to fly there quite a bit. And every once in a while, we'd have to fly coach mm -hmm. and to fly 12 to 16 hours in a contained seat that's tight. It's not much fun. Right. So yeah. I don't particularly enjoy traveling. Okay. Any any places that you enjoyed being once you got there? Or? Japan was always a great place to yeah. be. Yeah. Really nice place to hang. Good food? Great food. Yeah. All right, and then speaking of food, uh, any favorite foods that you like to eat or local restaurants around Vancouver, Portland areas? Yeah, Hudson's. Hudson's. Yeah, it's a there's a hotel there, and it's and the the restaurant part is called Hudson's, which is a, one of our places that we like to go to. The, the atmosphere is really nice. Nice. So if you if you're in the Vancouver area, you want to come to the Vancouver area, I'd always recommend Hudson's as a great dinner place. Nice. And what types of food? How would you describe it? Um, traditional. Okay. Just a high, uh, more of a classy steak place, or I mean, they have everything there. So it's, yeah. And then one of our other places to go to all the time. We eat out quite a bit. Okay. Um, when the weather is good, is beaches on the uh, river on the Columbia River. That's always a great place to nice to have dinner. Okay. Just sit out on the deck and enjoy it. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. And then, uh, all right, so this is a big question. You can take a pass if you want. How do we solve the world's problems? <laughs> well, the first thing that comes to mind is get rid of the existing president. <laughs> I, I second until you, that. Until you do that, there's not much you can do. <laughs> okay. I think that's a good start. All right. Anything else? Nope. Okay, that's the, all right, yeah. All right. Can music and the arts help alleviate violent crimes, and how, if so? Well, yeah. If, if you're f focused around music, and you're not focused around um, people that commit crimes, such as gangs, uh, I can see how it kind of diversifies you from getting in trouble. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I think that's you know, obviously like. It's easy to say if if I didn't grow up in a, in an area where, you know, there were there were gangs and that sort of pressure to to do things like that. But um, it's nice when people have options, you know, as opposed to not feeling like they have any options. Yeah, unfortunately, it's it's you know it always comes down to money. Yeah, and being able to get by, being able to live, being able to eat, being able to have a roof over your head. And um, but I think a lot of 
especially with gangs, it's it's who you hang with. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily not having a place to live that you're not homeless if you, you know, if if you're in a gang and and your parents do have a place for you to live, but that's the type of people that you choose to hang with and you get involved in committing crimes. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Um, but I think as a musician, if you're around a group of other musicians, you're more focused on your playing and making music than you are doing something illegal. Yeah, I think that's good. All right. Well, that's a very different question. So, <laughs> But thank you for your answer yeah. on that. Um, are there any questions I should have asked you that I haven't yet? Well, you could ask me how this interview went. How did this interview go? It went great. Thank did you. It? All right. It's always nice hanging with you. Likewise. Thank you. We've been friends for a very long time. Definitely. And, uh, you, you, you give me nice accolades that I don't deserve, <laughs> but I appreciate them anyway. <laughs> oh, man. You should hear this guy play guitar, oh, though, and thanks. definitely check out. I will uh, put links to the website on the podcast, so when people look up the podcast to listen to it, they can go and check out uh, Sun City. Sun City Players. Players.com. And come to one of our venues that we yeah, play at. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I sure appreciate your time, and thank you for uh, all that you've contributed. You know, it's it's very cool knowing a lot of the things that I've been listening to for the last decades. You know, you sort of played a part in, in that. You know, you you had the store that got the amp modded that made that sound that I've been listening to ever since 1970-whatever, 1980-whatever. And, you know, it's just, it's incredible just to see this kind of circle. I think I think that your reach goes way beyond what you realize. And I appreciate, like, I know you as a musician, but I know, also know you as, an, you know, a guitar expert and as a, a business you know, person and all these different things. So you have a lot of hats that you've worn. Um, but I find, uh, you know, your story is really cool to me. And I know that you've had a lot of influence on a lot of people over the years. So well, I really you. appreciate you and, and thank you for taking the time and sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank all you right. very much. All right, Danny. Find out more at artmedianorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com.